one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Read like the intro. Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. This episode's featured release is Rough House by Jeffrey Hess. It's August 1986. The Cold War rages and yuppies are making all the money. Fresh off a three-year stretch at Stark for keeping Pierce family secrets, Scotland has a new place to call home on Fort Myers Beach. All should be perfect, except Scotland's wife is going to die unless he comes up with a hundred grand. He enlists a trusted friend to help him rob a Tampa casino to pay for her unconventional treatment. While freely risking life in prison if he's caught, he never thought his trusted accomplice would go rogue and turn on him. On top of that, his long-lost nieces come to him in need of help only he can provide, while a mysterious female former Marine has her own surprise planned for him. Scotland hurtles through his newfound freedom right back into a storm of violence and pain, with strong women and treacherous men gusting in all directions. Without him, the women would be doomed. Without them, he would be. Yet success and failure are put to the biggest challenge by an unsettled score from the past that threatens to bury them all in the surf. Rough House by Jeffrey Hess is available from your favorite book reseller, your favorite bookseller, and online retailers. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own, while others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then we start over. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are among some of the first to be considered mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about obsession, social unrest, and the courage to stand. This is episode eight, Poetic Dissonance, an adaptation of Mademoiselle de Scudery by E.T.A. Hoffman. Okay, so today's story is set in Paris, beginning of autumn 1680. Paris was also the location for the first episode of this season, The Thinking Man, which was the adaptation of Poe's Murder in the Rue Morgue. As we said a few weeks ago, Paris is famous for well-being Paris, with people having lived in the area since the third century BC. The star of today's show is a 73-year-old storyteller and poet, Madeleine de Scudery referenced throughout the story by the simple title Mademoiselle. She lived in a small house, by 18th century French standards, on Rue Saint-Honoré. Interestingly, the Thinking Man story referenced Saint Roche Church, which is on the same street. A link to a map of Paris in 1650 is in the show notes and uh, on our website and Facebook. It's amazing how 470 years later you can still find the same streets on Google Maps. Because Mademoiselle attended King Louis XIV's court, we'll put our pin closer to the Louvre this time. 
So this story is interesting far beyond the actual story. It was published in 1819 and is considered the first detective story. No doubt it was cutting edge. Consider that ETA's Huffman's detective was a 70-year-old female and that he used historic people. So the real Madeline de Scudery was born November 15, 1607, and she died June 2, 1701 at the age of 93. She was a prolific writer and was part of the French Renaissance. Among her friends was the poet Paul Scarron and his wife, Francois. How do you say that name, Jack Francois? Francois. Francois, but it's, isn't that the boy version of it? I forget how to, whoa, I forget how to pronounce Francoise or however. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. We're going to call her Fran. After Paul's death, Fran climbed the hierarchy of society, eventually being known as Madame de Maintenon. Her, um, she was lover and the secret wife of Louis XIV. So I'm not a history buff, but reading about the craziness of France in the mid-1600s was pretty unbelievable. Netflix, etc. has been making series out of the English aristocracy. I think they need to go check out the French. In a scandal known as the Fair of Poisons, heads rolled, literally, in the quest to seek justice and put an end to people poisoning others to hurry along their inheritance. Um, sometimes they would use for revenge, too. There's links to the Wikipedia page in the show notes and on the website. because This was crazy. All right. Goodreads ratings. Originally published in German, this story has over 2,200 ratings with an average of 3.4. Many of the reviews are not in English. I just renewed my Babbel subscription, so maybe eventually I'll be able to read them. Anyway, here's an excerpt of a five-star review. It was a wonderful story of mystery set against the backdrop of the affair of poisons in Paris. The atmosphere was very dark and claustrophobic. Everyone was paranoid and there was much fear of the police. The main char character, Madame de Scudery, Mademoiselle de Scudery, was a great heroine, 73, sharp and compassionate. She was also a force to be reckoned with and even the king listened to her. The plot was interesting, dramatic, with lots of twists and turns. Yeah, and that was only an excerpt. Here's a three star. Mademoiselle de Scudery is honestly far from the most brilliant, is far from his most brilliant achievements. Yeah, I can read that. The Mademoiselle in question is an elderly poet with connections to the fresh aristocracy and the Sun King himself, and she sets out to unveil a series of brutal crimes committed in the streets of Paris at night. If it sounds like a period piece with large gowns, even larger wigs, and a heavily powdered Miss Marple, the reason is that that's pretty much exactly what it is. I'll make one comment here in defense of Mademoiselle de Scudery. Miss Marple was first published in December 1927, nearly 110 years after de Scudery. Two-star review. Nothing special, although there is some interesting vocabulary in the book. I wonder what language they read it in because I don't remember interesting vocabulary. All right, Jack, you want to tell us a little bit about our author of the episode? You know, that's my favorite thing in the world. Our original author today is Etta Hoffman. E-T-A. Etta Hoffman. The Etta stands for Ernest Theodore 
Amadeus. He was born Ernest Theodore Wilhelm Hoffman, which doesn't work because then it wouldn't be Etta, it'd be Etwe. Whatever. (laughs) Now there's a pen name for no one. What? That's not a sentence. Now there's a pen name no one will figure out. Now there's a pen name no one will figure out. If you are thinking, I've never heard of Etta Hoffman, you are wrong. He wrote the story The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, which is the basis for... (laughs) Tchaikovsky's? Yeah. Uh, That guy's the Nutcracker. (laughs) I wondered what you would do at Tchaikovsky. Yeah, that's what I did at Tchaikovsky. (laughs) So Hoffman was born January 1776 and died June 1822. Like many of the authors we've featured, he did a lot of different things. He was considered a... What? Jurist. Oh, a jurist, which is someone with expert knowledge in law, the field many of his family members worked in. He worked for his uncle, who was promoted from a local court to one in Berlin. He was an author, artist, and composer, and he also worked as a stage manager. Hoffy Mann found himself in a little trouble at his first job in South Prussia, Prussia, uh, caricatures of military officers were distributed at a ball. Everyone knew who did it, and they complained about it. But Hoffy Mann had supporters, so to solve the problem, he was promoted to a new job in another city. Hoffman saw this as being exiled, and he wasn't wrong, but it gave him time to write and compose, so there's that. Hoffman died when he was 46. He published 10 instrumental scores, 13 works for the stage, 8 vocal pieces, and 14 books or collections. Uh, collections. That doesn't count the sketches, drawings. The sketches and drawings. Imagine what he would have done if he had lived another 45 years. I can. He'd... Do you hear that? I do hear that. I wonder how long it'll last. I don't know either. I don't know if our audience can hear my cell phone ringing in the kitchen. Here, I'll bring the... uh, We don't have that far of a microphone. We'll just keep going because it's live, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes. Yeah. So we are nearly ready to begin our story. While Jack resets his microphone and warms up his fingers, I'll explain why we're doing adaptations of these early stories instead of performing them as written. I swear I put it on vibrate, too, or silent, whatever you want to call it. Two main reasons. The language from the 1800s is hard, even after it's been translated to English. And second, the style and length of the stories were not created for listening. They were created for reading. With these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but update the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. If season one did nothing else, it proved I can't do accents. Maybe once the morgue is filled up with donations to our body bag brigade, I can take some lessons. Until then, I'm going to stick with my regular voice. The story is set in Paris, and the characters are, you guessed it, French. I've changed the names to words I can say, which is pathetic but true. Jack is going to have to read the titles this time because they are in French. One final note, since Mademoiselle was a poet and Hoffman too, we've incorporated poetry into this episode. So we're going to have a little funky time coming up here. Now we're ready for poetic dissidence. I apologize in advance for any pathetic attempts I make at French. Jack, I'll transform myself into a 17th century elderly poet while you take us in.
Oh, um, what am I? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. First poem. Are you guys ready? This is exciting. Just read the chapter title. I'll read the poem. All right. Cool. You ready? All right. Um. Okay. Uh, je déteste le lundi. Chapter one. I hate Mondays. Diftera is too pretty for the clumsy start it breaks. Pandulak describes the nasty way it stings. Lunas is appropriate for only loons adore it. And montage is too nice for the masses who abhor it. Monday is a drag, morning, night, and midday. Simple is the truth. Je déteste la lundi. Paris bustled by my gate at a fashionable speed. Here I stood in my parlor, a spectator, seeing but not being seen. Taking in all she had to offer and giving back in my own way, my hand fell, sliding down the curtain, the satin smooth beneath my fingers. Mademoiselle, did you hear what we said? Annette, my maid, was not herself this morning. A young woman, she had shed the unconfident shell she wore in her youth, yet here she was, worrying a hole in my carpet. Do stop slouching, Annette, it will ruin your back. I told her for her own good. What man wants a stooped woman? You said a gentleman called last night? I did not think him a gentleman, she said, standing straighter. I was awoken by his knocking on the door. It was after you retired. He was incessant calling you to let him in. I shouted down to him from my window, asking who he was and what he wanted. The man knew who I was. He said he had to speak with you. Of course I told him no. I told him to come back at a respectable hour. Absolutely reasonable, I said, complimenting her good judgment. He did not agree, she said. He begged me to let him in. Mademoiselle, she lowered her voice as if to stop the walls from hearing her. Mademoiselle, he knew things. He knew your habit of writing late into the night. He knew Baptiste was out of the house. He did not give me his name, but it seemed I must have known him. The guard was approaching. I could hear them, and he was desperate not to be discovered. You let him in, I asked? She slowly nodded. I instantly regretted it. He seemed a madman. He was working into a lather, and still he insisted on seeing you. I again refused. He drew his stiletto. I was shocked at the impertinence. He pulled a shoe on you? Annette shook her head. It was a dagger with a long blade and needle-like point. The shoe won't be invented for nearly 200 years. Of course, I said. He did not use the weapon on you, neither dagger nor shoe? I observed no holes in her person. She crossed her arms over her stomach, covering an invisible wound. No, he did not, she said. The guard were coming and he heard them. He kept looking to the door as if he expected they would parade into the house. He shoved a box into my hands and ordered me to give it to you. Then he ran from the house like a madman. What a story! I delighted in her creativity. I think you should be the writer and I the maid. It is true, mademoiselle. Baptiste stood behind Annette's shoulders. A stout man was my cook, my porter, and my footman. Together they were in the entirety of my staff, and he should not be here. Baptiste, I thought you were in the country at your cousin's wedding. I returned early, he said, stating the obvious by his presence. I had a bad feeling. These are not good times to be living in Paris. True, I said, but what would anyone want with me? I am seventy and three. 
I have little beyond this house and the delight you two bring me. I write stories of romance and adventure of poetry. None could benefit by laying siege to me. Yet someone did lay siege, Batiste said, not being dissuaded. A young, the young man Annette described ran out of the house, tumbling me over. When I recovered my feet, I hurried into the house, afraid for the two of you. I found Annette collapsed against the door, guarding you. The truth behind Annette's fidgeting emerged. She was afraid for me. It was, as I told them, there was no reason for her to be. But in the 1670s Paris, it took little for one to come face to face with the guillotine. It was not so long ago friends were afraid to dine with friends. A poison with no taste and no smell could be put in anything. The smallest nibble brought a quick end. The king, Louis XIV, empowered a new division of police, the guard, to take action. Many heads rolled in search of the hand of the master. At the heart was found to be a fortune teller. She kept a book filled with the names of customers from legendary families. The guard took the list. And so it was learned that even the legendary heads do roll. Just as Paris began to settle, a new nemesis emerged. The night was now the territory of a cunning monsters who struck with impunity at the most noble of gentlemen. The goal? Treasure. Gold, sapphires, rubies, pearls, silver, emeralds. And so the guard patrolled with the sanctioned bloodlust, viewing every person as guilty until proven innocent. I went to Annette, taking her smooth hands in my withered ones. How can I be so fortunate to find one such as you, such as both of you, two who look upon me with eyes of true affection? I squeezed her hands. Show me this box that was left for me. Let us look at it together and put this firmly behind us. It was Baptiste who retrieved a plain wooden box from a shelf and placed it on the table. We three crowded around it, staring at the box as if it were an African crocodile that would snap our fingers off at the lightest touch. It is a box, I said. What could it do? It could kill us, Annette said in a whisper of fear. I've heard of such a thing. One touch and you are with the spirits. <laughs> I laughed at the picture of it. I wish I had your imagination, Annette. I opened the box. What laid inside made even Annette's imagination seem dull. Chapter 2 Ne point digne d'amour Drunken is the love that never sees the sun. With a fleeting glance, fermenting is begun. Heady is the taste of those stolen kisses. What society compels, passion dismisses. Shackled is the heart parading round at noon. Unbridled is the lover ruled by the moon. Cherished like the stars in heaven high above, a fearless heart will always be worthy of love. This is truly the work of a master, Madeline. My dearest friend, Madame de Montenot, held up an exquisite necklace to the light. The ornate gold shined like the sun breaking through the clouds. The pair of bracelets, though naturally smaller, were no less detailed. This can only be the work of one man, she said, René Cardillac. 
In all of Paris, no, in, in all of France, there was no jeweler more renowned for his work than René Cardillac. Every nobleman sought Cardillac for a gift for his wife or his lover. It is beautiful and filled with intrigue, absolutely irresistible, Madame said. A young man delivered it in the middle of the night? He is truly very brave, or very stupid. These marauders who can smell gold and gems kill as easily as they rob. Then the guard and their lieutenant, de Grey, are so attuned to crime that they can see it where it is not. Any man out of place after hours could easily find himself in the Bastille. He said nothing as to why he gave this to you? Annette, the dear girl, refused to wake me, I said, even after she was threatened. He left the box in her care with orders to deliver it to me in the morning. This was in the box. I held out the note I found. Dear heart, you are shaking, she said, noticing my hand. With rage, madame, with insult, I said. Read. She returned the necklace to the box and took up the slip of paper. A lover who is afraid of robbers is not worth love. Her gaze snapped to mine. You said that to Louis XIV. You were sitting in that very chair. I nodded. The king had received that overly contrived poem, naming him the shining star of all that was love and passion, asking him to draw his sword and strike down the monsters who were preying on love. The call to arms on behalf of lovers endangered by the marauders, as you call them. I remember, she said. He turned to me and asked my thoughts. I said that those who cheat and sneak were not worthy of such a defense, but the attacks were too heinous to ignore. Louis rose. I was certain he was of mind to leave the room, but he stopped where I stand now and asked your opinion. I am not as gracious as you, madame, for I said a lover who is afraid of robbers is not worthy of love. I pointed to the note. There is more. Read if you please. Madame returned to the light of the window. Your clever mind, honored lady, has saved us from being hunted. Those who we target use their position over others to keep them down. We do no different, exercising the right of the stronger over the weak, taking for ourselves the treasures that would otherwise be wasted. Kindly accept our gift of the most brilliant jewelry we have to offer, knowing you should be adorned with jewels twice as fine. We trust you will not withdraw your friendship and kind remembrance. Signed, The Invisibles. With the help of the arms, I pushed out of the easy chair. Now you see why I'm so distraught, madame? These, these invisibles have taken a comment made at least partially in jest and made me a party to their brutal ways. They have fashioned me into a silly woman who shields murderers behind her skirts while I read poetry to the king, hoping he does not notice the blood dripping from my hands. No, madame said sharply. I will not hear of this. The actions of these men are on their head and theirs alone. We must think on this. What shall we do? I sat again, appreciating Madame's thoughtfulness to my problems. I am not keeping the jewelry. These were stolen from someone. At the very least, I shall return it to the proper owner, whoever that is. How will we find out who that is? Madame smiled. We ask Cardillac. If you couldn't hear Jack, he said, Chapter 3, Enter Cardillac. There once was a stout man from Paris, whose trinkets made ladies marry. Old and young men appealed for the gold that he wield, made ladies forget they were married. 
think something was off in my meter there a little bit. <laughs> All right. The reputation of the man standing in Madame's parlor was much bigger than the man himself. The finest goldsmith in France was a short man with broad shoulders and thick hands. Madame de Montneau, I understand you are in need of an opinion. Thank you for coming, Monsieur Cardillac, Madame said. I realize this is a bit unusual, but truly, you are the only one who can counsel us. But Cardillac was not listening. With Madame's invitation to enter, Cardillac became aware of me. The whole of his attention so focused upon me that he tripped over the air. His staggering steps were more graceful than coltish in contrast to his stature. When his weight was again balanced on his feet, he bowed low, giving me a deference well above my due. Mademoiselle, he said. He rose, then turned to Madame, who had to repeat herself. It was an experience Madame was not used to and clearly did not enjoy. We are in need of your advice, she said, gesturing to the table spread with the cloth the color of a forest, the product of the master's hand laying atop. Cardillac quickly crossed to the jewelry and began packing it back in the box. Madame raised a singular eyebrow at the odd behavior. Are those your work, she asked. Cardillac's focus was equally singular. Whose hands could produce a trio such as these? Whose mind could conceive of such? Of course they are my work. He wrapped the necklace around his hand, reducing it to the size exactly needed to fit inside the box, in exactly the manner I originally found it. For whom did you make these, Madame asked. For myself and myself only, Cardillac responded quickly, but his answer did not make sense. The adornments outshined the collections of every lady in Paris. These were not cast-offs. Cardillac realized that he was the center of our attention. I suppose you find it odd, he said, but I assure you, I made this set solely because I love to create. I had a vision and the overwhelming need to make it real. I selected my best stones and set to work, spending more time than I ever have before. Recently, these sweets found their way out of my workshop. Oh, thank heavens, I said. I pushed out of my chair with the energy of a woman half my age. Monsieur Cardillac, you must take these back. The route they had to me was scandalous. A man beset upon my door at midnight. I told him the tale of the prior night. Cardillac had the most expressive face. It changed suddenly like the weather on the coast. One minute warm and sunny, the next gray and blustery. Throughout my story, he injected only non-committal monosyllabic tones. Oh? Hmm. So? No. When I finished, the man did the most unexpected thing yet. He fell to his knees. Mademoiselle, he said, I see now that it was for you that I made these trinkets. I have long admired your grace and devoutness. Take them. Wear them. Do not lock them away, but allow them to shine as you have always shined. I stepped back, the ceremony of the moment wholly uncomfortable. No, monsieur, no. What use do I have for bracelets such as these? My arms are long past their times. My wrinkled bosom is no place to showcase your work. I took the box and put it in his calloused hands. Cardillac did not accept the box, but pushed it back toward me. An artist does not always know for whom art is made. Is that not the same for a poet? A writer? It is, I said, because there were truths in his words. But the value of a story is, is a puddle compared to the ocean you have crafted. In your eyes, perhaps, he said, but not in mine. For goodness sake, Madame took the box out of our combined hands. Mademoiselle, you are acting like a schoolgirl, saying no because that is what you think is expected of you when you really want to say yes. 
You are always putting your age out front. Monsieur recognizes the beauty beneath those years, beyond those years. Honor him and accept the gift. Then the box was in my hands again. Cardillac rose, taking one of my hands and kissing it. Then he, literally, ran out of Madame's house. I turned to Madame. How extraordinarily odd. Yes, she said, taking the box and opening it again. It is both extraordinary and odd. I stared out the door, nearly expecting him to reappear. What could be in his mind? Madame gasped. I know. He has fallen in love with you. Mischief sparkled in her eyes. He is wooing you as he should, plying you with gifts. It is only a matter of time before he will be on his knees in front of you again. <laughs> I laughed, enjoying the foolishness. To be claimed at the ripe age of three and seventy. If only my mamma were here to instruct me in the ways of husbands, I said to her. Madame wrapped her arm around my waist. I will have to stand in for her and educate you in the way of running a household and keeping your husband's bedroom. I am too lucky to have you, Madame. Mama, I said. We giggled like the girls we once were. But truly, I cannot wear these. These must have been in the hands of thieves and murderers, ones who have, been used, ones who have used my words against me. Madame shrugged in that way that others often imitated. They are a gift given in earnest. She traced the facets on a particularly large sapphire. I shook my head, finding the words to make her understand. You look at these and see gold and jewels. I see blood. That is what would be laying upon my breast. I looked over my shoulder to her noble face. If our positions were reversed, would you wear them? Her face lapsed from merry to disgust. She closed the lid. I would throw them in the saint and would, before I would wear them. Chapter 4. La Poissier à la Poissier. From fragile egg to feathered bees, how high the bird does fly. From blush of dawn to sunlight cease, freedom is in the sky. As all that lives is born to die, this rule is nature's must. Soaring high, as night draws nigh, for dust returns to dust. The grandeur of autumn was receding into the drizzle of winter. As days shortened and nights stretched, I thought little of Rene Cardillac. The decorations and their master were far from my mind that early winter day. The sun had broken through several days of clouds, and I was treated to a ride in Mamem's glass carriage. I'm sorry, in Madame's glass carriage. Still a new invention, the carriage garnered attention throughout Paris. As Annette and I rode with Madame and her maid over Pont Neuf, people pressed close to see, at times obstructing the progress of the horses. A young man fought his way through the crowd. He was a sight, using hands and elbows to open a seam in the sea of people. His face was a mask of intensity, his goal clear, the carriage. He did not stop and gawk as others did. No, this man came right up to the carriage and ripped open the door. Annette screamed. The man paid her no attention but flung a paper onto my lap, slammed the door and fought his way back out. Who was that, mademoiselle? Madame asked. What did he give you? Mademoiselle, Annette said. That, that was the man, the one who brought Cardillac's box. He did, did he harm you? 
No, my dear, I said, not at all. He had an air of familiarity, but I, I can't place him. I unfolded the paper and read. Shall we see what he has to say? Mademoiselle de Scudery, honored lady, I beg you to return the adornments to the master René Cardillac. Find a pretense if you must. I fear if they are not returned, soon your life will be in danger. Heed this warning, I again beg, and deliver the jewelry within the day. I looked up from reading to the astonished faces surrounding me. For myself, I felt relieved. I shall do exactly as he asks, gladly. Madame raised her chin and then solemnly nodded. Perhaps that would be for the best. The events of the day had a plan of their own, and I returned home too late to venture to Monsieur Cardillac's home. The following day, I collected the box and enlisted Baptiste to drive the distance to the building that was both home and workshop to Cardillac. Our approach was slowed by a mass of people. They were not dressed for an outing, but in simple day dress. These were the neighbors and merchants, their friends a combination of worried, anxious, and curious. Baptiste drove into the heart of the crowd. He climbed down from his seat and opened my door. I put my foot on the ground just as the front door of Cardillac's home was yanked open and a young man pushed out in chains. Not any young man, but the one who had given me the note. His white shirt was stained red. His hands were the same. Stop! You can't do this! He's innocent! A young woman threw herself at the guard. The guard shook her off, sending her tumbling down the stairs. She landed in a sprawl of limbs and skirts that left her legs exposed. The assembled gasped and gawked, but did not help. I indicated the girl. Bring her here, Baptiste. I accompanied him the scant distance. What is happening, I, I asked the guard. René Cardillac is dead, he said, murdered by this man, his own apprentice. It's not true, mademoiselle. Terrified, the young man looked directly in my eyes and spoke clearly. I tried to save him. I tried to help. You helped him, all right, the guard said. You helped him with a knife in his belly. The young apprentice shook his head adamantly, declaring his innocence as he was muscled down the stairs. That one is likely his accomplice. The guard indicated the unconscious form hanging from Baptiste's arms. Helene had nothing to do with her father's death, the apprentice shouted. She is innocent, as am I. There is a story we've never heard, the guard said, pushing the apprentice to the awaiting carriage. It will be the guillotine for you. Help me, mademoiselle, the apprentice strained to see me. Please, please. Baptiste spoke softly. Perhaps we should be going before their interest is renewed. Yes, Baptiste, I said, an excellent suggestion. Helene Cardillac suffered a vicious blow to her head. Although it did not bleed, the knot swelled to the size of an apple. She woke twice, completely delirious and out of her mind. The third time she woke, nearly a day later, she simply looked around the room. I am Mademoiselle de Scudery, I said. You are in my home and you are safe. How do you feel, Helene? She blinked several times. My father, she said eventually, is he dead? I covered her hand, giving what little comfort I could. Yes, my dear, he is. I am so sorry. Tears welled in her eyes. And Oliver? The apprentice, I asked. He has been arrested. She began shaking her head too vigorously for someone with her injury. No, mademoiselle, he is innocent. He tried to protect my father, to save him. The injury was too great. She rolled her head on the pillow. My father, oh, my love. Curiosity ate at me. It may have been improper, but I couldn't help asking. What did happen last night? Papa likes to walk at night, she said. He does so frequently. 
I went to sleep and all was right with the world. Oliver woke me early this morning. Papa had been attacked, stabbed by a stranger in the street. Oliver brought him home. When it was clear the wound was, was fatal, he woke me. I, I held his hand while he... Grief overcame her. I didn't need to be told what happened next. The authorities were called and determined it was the apprentice, Oliver, who had taken his master's life. This apprentice who seemed so familiar to me. How long has Oliver been with your father, I asked. Nearly a year, she said through tears. He is talented, nearly as much as father. We were going to marry and he would take his place next to Papa. Mademoiselle, how could something like this happen? The final chapter, Une situation de plus délicate. Justice is in the eye of the beholder. When one expects to find crime, one sees a criminal. When one seeks to see truth, one finds a man, simple, imperfect, alone. He was adamant, Mademoiselle, Baptiste said. He stated it loudly and clearly that he was innocent. Baptiste then stood as a soldier would, reporting his observation from Oliver Brusson's arraignment. The king's prosecutor put question after question to the young man, and his story never changed. His master went out and ordered Oliver to attend him. He was directed to stay ten yards behind, which he did. Cardillac and another man met in a passing, and Cardillac collapsed. Oliver ran to him, finding that he'd been stabbed. Still alive, Oliver brought Cadillac back home, where he took where he took a turn for the worse. Oliver woke Helene so that she might say goodbye to her father. He died near midnight. I could hear no flaw. The story was consistent with Helene's. I had no doubt it was a true accounting of the events. According to Helene, she and Oliver stayed with her father until the guard entered the house. Batiste nodded. DeGras indicated that they were called by neighbors disturbed by a woman crying. Searching the house, they found a bloody knife. It matched Cardillac's wounds. That certainly sounds bad, I said. Still, there must be a reason it was there. I can understand the guard's suspicion, but what reason would Oliver have to kill Cardillac? You have heard Helene yourself. They were happy, those three. So she said, and I believe her, but, Baptiste said, the prosecutor had other evidence. Cardillac's habit was to be in around nine in the evening. The lock on the door is very large and loud. The tenant on the lower level and his house housekeeper both heard the door close and the lock put in place shortly after nine. Footsteps went up the stairs as they did every night. They were certain no one had gone out that night. I understood the prosecutor's argument. Did Oliver not see the man who attacked Cardillac? I asked. Did no one see the two of them coming out on the street? Baptiste shrugged. If someone did, they were not called to witness. I closed my eyes and rested my head, my fingers drumming on the arm of the chair. This was the best position for thinking, and thinking was required. When I played the scene over, based on Oliver's innocence, I could see the bits and pieces fall into place. It was the same it was the same as when I wrote a story or a poem, each piece connected to the next, playing a role. The tenants were wrong about Cardillac. 
They had not seen him and only assumed the person climbing the steps was he. To be fair, I replayed the same assuming Oliver's guilt. It was not hard to imagine an apprentice and master alone at night, but having met Cardillac, having seen Oliver, knowing Helene, everything was out of character. According to Helene, there had been no argument, no falling out. There was no anger, and without anger, the knife is never picked up. I opened my eyes, seeing my patient Baptiste waiting on me. I cannot allow this, I said. I will speak with La Reynier, the head of the guard. If he does not show good sense, I will take the matter directly to the king. I appreciate the passion with which you speak, esteemed lady. La Reynier handed his white handkerchief to me to use in drying my tears. It's as much about the depth of your heart, but do trust me that this is misplaced in Oliver Brusson. The man is guilty of murder. There is no sense in it, I said, exasperated. Can you see a single reason for Oliver to kill Cardillac? He shrugged. Money is the usual reason, as is love. Exactly, I said, pouncing on his argument. Oliver is betrothed to Helene. There was nothing to be gained by killing his soon-to-be father-in-law. Le Renier dissuaved my logic with the wave. He wouldn't be the first man who has been impatient to inherit, or the first woman. I surged to my feet. Are you suggesting Helene had some role in this affair? Women are not immune to the call of the coin, he said. Do not look so scandalized. Anyway, it does not matter. I have done my part. I do not look beyond the arrest. Justice does what it does. And when justice is unjust, I asked, what then? He shrugged again. I couldn't stay there, choking on the outrage. I turned and hurried from his office. Le Renier escorted me like a gentleman. Jack, you need to turn your paper over. There's more on the other side of it. He's looking for his pages. The one titled Chapter Six. <laughs> so, um, I might have told you the wrong chapter on the last chapter. So, Chapter Five was not the one I told you. It, it, chapter Five was actually L'Homme's Pour l'Innocence. Which means? Which means Tears for the Innocent. Which makes sense in hindsight. <laughs> I was wondering what had to do with dust. But, anywho. This next one is chapter six, which is La Moi de Silencieux, which is Love is Silent. She marvels at snowflakes, not noticing she's freezing. She plays in raindrops. The storm is upon her. Where others see down, she only sees up. L'amour est vague. Yes, love is blind. She taps her foot to the rhythm of a raucous. She hums a tune as a train bears down upon her. L'amour est sûr. Love is deaf. She smiles in the face of humiliation. She turns her back on the whispers of the vine. L'amour est silencieux. Love is silent. That evening, Baptiste interrupted my writing with news of a caller. While he, would, while he would have preferred to turn the man away, I was curious. I descended the stairs and entered my parlor. The feared lieutenant of the guard, de Grey, stood, rose like a gentleman. 
Mademoiselle de Scuderie, thank you for seeing me. You are always welcome, monsieur. I sat and invited him to do the same. What can I do for you? Le René sent me to ask a favor of you. Oliver Broussant has been on the verge of hysterics since your visit. He has declared that he will tell everything, but only to you. There is more to this affair than we understand today. More crime and more victims. In the pit of my stomach, acid burned, making me ill. Am I to be an instrument of the court now? No. In no way do I approve of the actions of the young man, but I will not sit here and be a sympathetic face to him while I lead him to the gallows. I do not want to know his secrets, and I do not want to keep them. Give him to a priest. Yet, it is you Brisson wants. You impressed La Renier with your passionate stand. You challenged him to see the man, not the crime. Can you do any less? De Grey was far more elegant than the newspapers gave him credit for. You can see Broussant here, in your home, he said. We will not listen, but we will, of course, be watching. You will not be any danger, I personally promise you. Granting the interview was the last thing I wanted to do, and yet I respected La Renier and de Graff for asking for my assistance. I will do as you ask, monsieur. The clock had just chimed midnight when a soft knock came at my door. Baptiste answered, admitting de Graff, followed by Oliver Broussant and four officers. One by one, the men faded away, even Baptiste, and then it was just Oliver and me. What do you want of me, I asked. Is it possible, he began, that you do not recognize the boy you carried about this very house? Have my eyes changed so much that you no longer see Anne Dubois shining out? My Oliver! I fell back in my chair, hand to my heart. Anne came to me as a young girl, meant to be a maid, and she became my daughter. When she was of age, a young watchmaker took a shining to her, and she to him. I gave my blessing, and they were married. Soon Oliver filled my arms. I stole him often, carrying him on my hip throughout the neighborhood. Her husband, he had a difficult time making a living in Paris, and the family moved to his home in Austria. That was three and twenty years ago. We rode for a few years before drifted to an end. I had comforted myself that my daughter was a mother now, a wife, with a life worth living. My dear Anne, I said, is she well? Oliver bowed his head. Maman passed years ago. She spoke often of you, my grandmare. My father had passed a few months before her after securing an apprenticeship for me. My heart broke. It was as if I had my girl back only to have her wrenched from my arms. She died years ago. She died a moment ago. Tell me, I said, forcing my voice to function. How long have you been in Paris? Months, he said. I was going to contact you once I established myself. I apprenticed myself to Cardillac, and I thought, finally, I was on my way. And then I met Helene. A soft expression warmed his face. I love her. I know the stories, Oliver. I know what you have said. I know what the king's prosecutor has said. What is the truth? The truth, he said, his expression changing to one of regret. A few months ago, Cardillac came into the workshop and threw me out. He found out about Helene and I. He did not approve, I asked. To put it mildly, he said. A friend took me in and I pieced together work. Love burned in me, though. One night, I was on the street behind Cardillac's home, waiting for a chance to speak to Helene. Suddenly, Cardillac was on the street. I followed him. We hadn't gone far when he set upon a man. I called out to him and he ran away while I ran to the man. 
blood spread through a wound in his chest. I tried to stop it. I didn't realize the guard had gathered around me. They asked me what happened and I explained, without naming Cardillac, of course. The next day, Cardillac came. He invited me back to his home. Helene had fought for me and he accepted me as her choice. I was sickened by his actions, of course, but Helene, Oliver looked at me. I couldn't let her go. I reversed our hands. What happened that night? It was as I said. Cardillac went out, though not for a walk. This time his mark was faster and Cardillac fell. Oliver wiped his mouth. I was filled with relief. The nightmare was over, except it wasn't. Do you know who killed Cardillac, I asked. I do not, he said softly. How did Cardillac leave the house without being seen, I asked. This is the largest evidence against you, that and the knife. The house was an old abbey, he said. There's a secret passage that leads out the back of the property. The door is very cleverly hidden in the wall. As for the knife, it was the one buried in Cardillac's stomach. I squeezed his hand. Cardillac was a part of the gang of thieves then? Gang? Grand Mare, he said. There is no gang. There was only Cardillac. He said I was his accomplice. If I should go to the guard, both of us would swing. I had seen enough of Parisian justice to know he was correct, though it disgusted me. I kept my silence and did my best to protect Helene. All of those deaths at the hand of the goldsmith. Why? I asked. Cardillac, he had become obsessed with his work. He, he couldn't let it go. He knew, of course, who he sold the work to and where it was going. It was easy for him to intercept the gentleman and recover his work. He knew of you, respected you. He heard what you said to the king and asked me to bring you the gift. I wanted to tell you who I was and asked for counsel, but I frightened your maid. His eyes met mine. Certainly, you can see that the only crime I am guilty of is not turning Cardillac in. I have killed no one. All right, here we are, mes amis, at the point of unraveling. Oliver has told the truth. He did not kill Cardillac. The mystery for you, Jack, and for you, dear mystery lover, is how do I, Mademoiselle de Scudery, get Oliver out of this without Helene finding out the truth about her father? Your thoughts, Jack? More people need to die. <laughs> That's not a solution. <laughs> Helene can't find out if Helene's not breathing. You know, you, sometimes you have some very harsh thoughts. Well, dear audience, I hope your imagination is, is less morbid than the piano players. I think you have two more chapters to read the intro to. Oh, he knows that. He nodded his head. This one's just in English. Enter the verdict. <laughs> well, I put it in French, but I guess it looks a lot like English. The word the is not French. Huh. I must have copied and pasted something wrong. Actually, wait. I think the word the is French, but I think it means T. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I So don't take my word on that, listeners. Oliver Brisson, with extraordinary honor to his master, the great René Cardillac, a man of peculiar ways. René Cardillac, 
the latest victim of Parisian nights, Oliver Brisson labored under his master's way. Rene Cardillac dying in his home, Helene Cardillac, her arms binding her father. Rene Cardillac with a deep breath departs. Oliver Brisson gathered his love. Oliver Brisson, heavy with noble burden. Oliver Brisson, protector of innocence. I reread my words, not a single phrase out of place. I folded the letter, sealing it with wax and branding it with an S crafted from my own hand. Baptiste, I called, holding my skirts as I descended the stairs. He met me at the bottom. This letter needs to be delivered to La Reynier immediately. He took the missive with a small bow. I will deliver it myself. Seeing him out the door, I returned to my desk, fully intending to work on a poem for Louis XIV. Verse is impossible to write when one's mind is bouncing between paper and door like a bee between flowers. Within half an hour, Baptiste returned, his mission complete. I returned to my waiting disguised as writing. The meter was off. The words clumsy, something all but impossible in French, and yet here it was. I went to the window, watching the world beneath until I was a fixture in the frame. And then a man came through the gate, his dress showing him to be from La Reynier. I closed my eyes, my hand pressed to my heart, willing it to stay within my chest. It took all of my strength not to run down the stairs and pull La Reynier's response from his runner. But I waited. The door opened. Baptiste climbed the stairs. I met him at the door, expecting a request for my presence. Instead, he handed me a letter, sealed by La Reynier. What do you think, I asked. The answer came quick, he said. Good answers come quickly. As do bad, I said, opening the letter. Mademoiselle de Scudery, it brings me satisfaction to know Oliver Brusson has vindicated himself to you. Brusson is fortunate to have an advocate, a protector of such esteemed virtue. For all the respect I have for you, dear lady, Brusson's determination to take his secrets willingly to the grave is not a term I can accept. Crimes have been committed for which the wrongdoer has to be held accountable. I will have this secret of Brusson's. My patience has reached a limit. It is the rack then, Batiste said. So it would seem, I replied. Terrified for Oliver, I could not accept La Reynier's word as the last. Baptiste, please bring my carriage around. Oh, that was a short one. All right. Are you ready to hear the final chapter that you definitely haven't already heard the title of? Un situation. <clears throat> that didn't happen. Une situation de plus délicate. Men shout in glory, pitting flesh to naked flesh. Steel blades impaled till all the breath does bleed. Might can gain no quarter in the French salon. It takes a poet's touch in a most delicate situation. With haste, Baptiste and I made the way to the door of the most celebrated lawyer in Paris, Henri Duval. He frequented the king's court and kept a residence near the Louvre. His secretary led me through the tall door to the sunlit office. Welcome, mademoiselle, Henry said, meeting me halfway. This is most unexpected to have such a respected lady calling on my office. 
Thank you, Monsieur Duval, I said, taking the chair he generously offered. Your reputation is known to all far and wide. The king himself looks to you for advice on matters of law and justice. It is for justice that I have come to you. You see, there is a young man. Without naming Oliver or betraying the secrets he protected, I told his tale. I shamelessly used the skills honed over 60 years of storytelling to bring Duval to the precipice, certain he would take up sword and fight for the innocent. Duval sat back in his gilded chair, a patient expression on his face. A heart-wrenching story to be sure, mademoiselle, but one that does not have a place for me. Le Renier has been very generous with this man, undoubtedly because of his regard for you. I stood interrupting his platitudes. Monsieur, an innocent man is going to be tortured. He rose more slowly. By his own choice, mademoiselle. This man could put an end to it all in a moment. He, he himself has moved La Renée into a position where he only has one move. If La Renée did not act, he would be forsaking his position. Determination rose, my chin going with it. Then I shall take the matter to the king. I will throw myself upon his mercy. Oh no, mademoiselle, he said, sinking back into his chair. I strongly advise you not to do so at this time. Should you do as you describe, you are not likely to succeed. The king cannot intervene for a man of his position without causing many troubles. Better to let justice do its work, and if the decision is against him, then go to the king. Louis XIV will be able to decide with his heart, having let the courts done their work. My heart ached with the truth that Duval was correct. I spent many years in court and had witnessed ten times the number of passionate fools lose everything while tears washed Louis' toes. Thank you, Monsieur Duval, I said with all the grace I could muster. You had given me much to think about. This world, this world has so much beauty. It pours over from the complex simplicity of flowers to the soothing hush of spring rain from the colorful spectacle of a rainbow to the delight of genuine laughter. But this world is also very ugly. It is this world that trampled on the beauty as Oliver's trial proceeded. Harsh was the rhetoric against him. His neighbors, his customers cursed his name, spat upon it, calling for his head. Time crept upon the verdict like a spider on a fly. These days were truly the darkest days. It didn't matter that the sun shined in a blue sky. Paris was drowning in a cesspool of inhumanity. After Helene was in her bed, I retreated to my writing, driven by a need to counter the ugliness. My quill sped across my parchment, my verse as certain as my cause. Mademoiselle, Annette interrupted my thoughts. You have a visitor. He said it as of vital importance. The Count de Marais waited in my parlor, hat in hand. Mademoiselle, he said with a bow, forgive the time, a soldier's time is not his own, and I will be brief. Please sit, Count. I entreated him to the couch while I took my chair. What brings you to my parlor? Oliver Broussant, he said, your protege. I know he is innocent. <gasps> I gasped, the sound one of surprise married with shock. How do you know this? It is I who killed Cardillac. Murray stood now with the stillness only a soldier could carry. Cardillac made a trinket at my request for a lady. His manner when I picked it up was so peculiar I couldn't put it from my mind. I realized that he had, in a very subtle way, learned to whom I intended to give the gift. 
and my habit for visiting her. Somehow, I knew I would be the next victim. I knew the details of the others and took a simple solution. I wore a thin chainmail beneath my tunic. The attack came from behind. It was as if I was being manhandled by a giant. The knife had glanced off the chain and I turned, bearing my own knife in the stomach. I was horrified to see Cardillac's face looking in mine. I stepped away as he fell. Your brisson ran to catch him. I rose shakily, nearly overtaken with the possibility of a solution. You can tell this to La Rene. You can free the innocent Brusson. Murray shook his head. Brusson is not innocent. He knew of Cardillac's treachery and did nothing. It could easily have been my blood pooling on the cobblestones. I tried again. If you would simply tell La Rene what happened. La Rene would have me arrested, he said, and strung up in the Bastille before the sun rose. He turned away from me. Your name, your rank would protect you, I said. He looked over his shoulder at me, as it has the others. How many were arrested, executed, exiled with the affair of poisons for the crime of having their fortunes told? He turned to face me again and shook his head. I am not proud of taking a life, but Cardillac's reign of terror has ended. I will not trade my life for his. Nor would I ask you to, I said. Please come with me to Henry Duval. Tell him that he may counsel me. It was this way that Henry Duval had two guests in his parlor at an unwelcome hour. He generously fortified us with brandy, listening without interrupting Marais's story. Duval refilled his glass. This is a most delicate situation. Brousseau cannot be saved from the hands of justice in any ordinary or regular way. Out of consideration for Helene, Brusson refuses to accuse Cardillac of being the thievish assassin. And he, must, and he must continue to do so. For even if he succeeded in proving his statements by pointing out the secret exit and the accumulated sto store of stolen jewelry, he would still be liable to death as partner in Cardillac's guilt. This could not be altered if Count Moray were to state the judges the real details of meeting Cardillac. The only thing we can aim at securing is a postponement of his torture. Duval addressed Murray. You, sir, go to the police. Have Oliver Brusson forward and recognize him as the man who carried Cardillac's dead body. Then go to La Renier and say, I saw a man stabbed in Rue Saint-Honoré, and as I stood close beside the corpse, another man sprang forward and stooped over the dead body. But on finding signs of life, he lifted him on his shoulders and carried him away. This man I recognize as Oliver Brusson. This will lead to another hearing for Brusson. At all events, the torture will be delayed and further inquiries will be instituted. Duval now turned to me. This will be the time for you to appeal to the king. Brusson's life will be in your skilled hands. My opinion? I think it would be best to disclose the whole mystery to the king. This could not win a verdict of acquittal by the court, but it might appeal to the king's feelings. It is his prerogative to speak mercy where a judge can only condemn. The next day, Murray followed Duval's direction. In my parlor that evening, he recounted going to the police and, upon seeing Oliver, made the claim of seeing him helping the stabbed man. Oliver, it seemed, did not recognize him. Murray then made the same claim to La Renier as the wheels turned as Duval had predicted they would. And so, it was my turn. The following evening, Madame de Montenot was entertaining the king, 
Her parlor was filled with court, men and women who lived by the king's word. I chose my costume intentionally. Black was my canvas. Silk covered my body, my hands. Lace covered my head. Rene Cardillac's masterpieces glowed like stars amid the night. I entered Madame's home. As I proceeded from the front room to the parlor, conversations fell to whispers. I came to a stop in the center of the room. All eyes were upon me. Louis XIV leaned into Madame. Our Mademoiselle mourns her suitor, he said in a whisper all could hear. I began with a flourish. The young rooster, not yet grown into his color, scurried about the yard, hunting and pecking, imitating the mother watching over it. The world was alive, a wondrous place where every corner brought a new discovery. Sun and rain, dark and light, the young rooster loved it all. His father, the elder rooster, had a talent for creating beauty, nay, a passion, one that would neither be denied nor hidden. And so the elder rooster created. Rocks and stones were rolled and polished until the sun itself seemed to be captured inside. All who came to the farm marveled at the elder rooster and clamored for the fruits of his labor. The other animals, jealous of the attention, pecked at the elder rooster until he fled. The, elder, the other rooster and mother took the young rooster to a faraway place. They sought peace and a quiet place for beauty to grow. The young rooster followed in his father's footsteps, his little foot squarely amid the larger print. He had inherited his father's title and devoured his lessons. He turned the dull and ordinary into the extraordinary. As happened before, the other animals grew jealous of the young rooster's skills and pressed upon mother and father. The elder father knew that he would not survive the press and worked to place the young rooster with the master. The hawk was known throughout Europe. Kings and queens petitioned for his work. He did not want nor need an apprentice, yet it would not do to turn the fledgling away without a cause. And so, the hawk set about creating a cause, putting the young rooster to three tests. The young rooster was led to a discarded pile and charged with creating a, a flower and turning it into a real flower. The rooster selected from the linen pile a section of skirt with small pearls sewn throughout. With a fluttering and scratching and pecking, a simple lace flower emerged from the center. The young rooster brought it to a girl he had noticed on the side of the road. The young girl sat at the base of a tree, lonely. She was so honored by the gift that she pulled the daisy from her hair and replaced it with the one the rooster had made. The rooster accepted the daisy, bowed, and took it to the hawk. Surprised by a young rooster's success, the hawk made the second test doubly hard. The hawk took a length of silk and covered the young rooster's eyes and charged him with taking the length of twine and turning it into gold. The young rooster set out from the hawk's home. It took him the rest of the day to find his way off the hawk's property. Blinded, he did not know the sun set, and so he walked all night. He intended to find his way to town, to the goldsmith, and trade the twine for a scrap. When the sun finally rose, he was exhausted. He stumbled across, across a warm rock and stopped to rest. Nearby came the crown of sighing, the sound of crying. The same girl sat, crying because she had lost her ribbon and her mother would punish her for her disorderly state. The roaster wo wove the twine into her hair, creating a braid that was never seen in a court. Grateful beyond words, the girl gifted the rooster with a chain from her wrist, a thin twist of the finest gold. 
The hawk was now worried. He made the third test impossible. He brought the rooster to the bank of the Sun River. To become his apprentice, the rooster simply had to join him on the opposite side without getting wet. The hawk then spread his wings, lifted into the air, and flew to the other side. The young rooster spread his wings, flapping as the hawk did, but rose a scant few feet in the air. The hawk watched as the rooster worked for hours to find the height to cross the great river. Satisfied that his problem was solved, the hawk left to find a meal. The rooster called out, begging the master to stay. Just as all seemed lost, the girl came toward the shore in a boat guided by a man. She called out to her friend and he flew to her near position. They floated down the river and as they sailed past a downed tree, the rooster saw his opportunity, flying first to the tree and then running across to the opposite shore. He landed just as the hawk returned. Accepted by a reluctant master, the rooster returned home to collect his belongings, only to find his father had died under the weight of jealousy and his mother was dying of a broken heart. He stayed close until she closed her eyes and then left the home that did not want him. Life was manageable with the hawk. He worked from sunup until sundown, but he had his friend, the girl. He made her treasures and she sang him songs. Their love was pure and simple. Until the hawk found out about the girl, he cast the rooster from his sight, refusing to accept him for the girl he'd sworn to protect. The next night, the rooster waited outside the girl's home, waiting for a chance to see her. A graceful form sliced through the moonlight. It wasn't the girl, but the hawk, silent in the night as he stole into the girl's room and relieved her of her ribbons. The rooster saw the hawk, and the hawk saw the rooster. The hawk sought out the rooster the next day, inviting him back. The rooster went, not for the hawk, but for the girl he had fallen in love with. Life with a heavy heart was not easy. The hawk continued in his larcenous ways. Ribbons turned to coils and then to silver. All he hid were the rooster to tell it was the girl who would pay the price. And so the rooster stayed silent, consoling himself that as long as he had the girl, he had everything. One night, a cat found her way into the girl's room. When the hawk entered to tuck away his newest prize, the cat struck fast and true. The rooster watched as the hawk fell, unable to fly with the wounded wing. Instinct engaged and the rooster attacked the cat. The feline fled. The rooster helped the hawk out the window. The rooster went to the treasure, looking to hide it, but he was not fast enough. Before he could make his own escape, the cat returned with the girl and her father. Father's eyes slid to the girl. The rooster saw his contempt. The rooster crowed for this first time in his life color tinting his red-brown feathers with red, blue, and yellow. The father reached out for the bird, capturing it in its unbreakable grip, and it broke its neck. No, shouted the king. What craziness is this, mademoiselle? You have in your prison such a young rooster. I fell upon Louis XIV's feet. I beseech you, save his life. Louis XIV hesitated. He heard of the trial, of the accusations. Count Marais and Monsieur Duval made it public that Oliver was seen helping René Cardillac. Gradually, grain by grain, popular opinion dropped through the hourglass until crowds gathered to demand Oliver's freedom. Days passed with no word from the king. Madame would not speak of the matter, and so I was left with only my worry. Baptiste, my dear servant, brought word that Oliver returned to Cardillac's home and workshop in the company of de Gras 
I began to hope. It was a full month after my performance that Madame sent for me. In her parlor, King Louis XIV greeted me, but asked only after poetry. As the night ticked on, I wept inside. One of his advisors entered and whispered into his ear. The king's gaze met mine. It seems, Mademoiselle, that your rooster has been freed. Your majesty, I said, pouring the depth of my gratitude and devotion into those two words. Take a check for 1,000 Louis d'Or as the girl's dowry, he said. Once wed, they are to leave Paris. This episode is over. With a small pardon to the king, I will offer these parting words. The king's men were able to root out the truth. Once discovered, Oliver provided the proof, including access to the hidden room where Cardillac stowed all the jewelry he had stolen. Oliver and Helene were married directly, and I was overjoyed as his, as his grandmother. The two left as the king ordered, but after all that had happened, Paris was not for them. A year after Cardillac's death, a notice appeared in the paper. Any who had lost adornments to the highwaymen could, with adequate description, claim them from the office of Monsieur Duval. With that, this episode is over. Merci. So did you see it? Did you see an epic poem being the way that Oliver's life was saved? I spaced out for <laughs> like 20 minutes. That means no. Yeah. Uh, All right. So let's chat about the story. Let's talk about it. Does the logic work? Yes. I wondered how <laughs> Cardillac knew of Mademoiselle's statement to Louis Fourteenth, but, you know, Mademoiselle doesn't know Cardillac until he's called into Madame's home. So this and the statement about refusing commissions for de, uh, Madame led me to the conclusion that Cardillac was not in Madame's parlor for him to hear himself. I mean, this is a minor, a minor flaw, and the statement could have easily been repeated for Cardillac to hear. It works that Cardillac knew where his victims would be and when. It's somewhat coincidental that there is a truly secret passage out of his home, but what do I know? Maybe those are pretty common. The timing works, although why Oliver didn't visit Mademoiselle sooner, for all intents and purposes, she was his grandmother and his last living relative. That seems a little theatrical. Does Mademoiselle work as a detective? She does assert herself into the story with uh, talking or taking in Helene and the visits with La Renee and the attorney Duval and the very the theatrical presentation to the king. She absolutely propels this story further. My only issue with her as the lead is that she doesn't detect. People just walk into her house and then tell their secrets. I mean, DeGras De and La Renee, they could have wrapped the whole incident up a whole lot faster if people would have talked to them the way they talked to her. Who knows, maybe Oliver would have gotten off. I mean, he wasn't arrested the first time he saw Cardillac attack a man. The ending here was satisfying. Although the original story isn't explicit, it seems Oliver was convicted but then granted amnesty by the king. The truth comes out without being made public, which I guess is a loss for the families of Cardillac's victims. This was one of the hardest adaptations to write. Stepping to the stones of an elderly French poet, as written by a 30-some German, took work. But I enjoyed the challenge, and I hope you all enjoyed the result. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. 
Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution by Jack Wolf. Poetic Dissonance was written by T.G. Wolf, adaptum from Mademoiselle de Scudery by E.T.A. Hoffman. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for episode nine. Take us out, Jack. <laughs> <laughs>